0: It is hard to believe we have been having in-depth conversations about movies since 2011.
1: You are telling me. Producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered.
0: Just visit thenextreel.com slash originals. Your purchases made through our links. Give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions.
1: Season 5 had some great adaptations, like our Meryl Streep Oscar-nominated performances series. We covered adaptations like Kramer vs. Kramer, Sophie's Choice, and The French Lieutenant's Woman.
0: It's a real Sophie's Choice between those books. (laughs) You
1: see what I I did there? Uh, Yeah. Uh, And I don't think it's quite at the level of a real Sophie's Choice.
0: We also did Snowpiercer for our Bong Joon-ho series, adapted from the French graphic novel Le Transpressionnage. Man, I love that movie.
1: We had our two-part 1939 series that included adaptations like Gone with the Wind, Ninotchka, The Women, and The Hound of the Baskervilles.
0: A number of those 1939 movies, like Goodbye Mr. Chips, also tied into our recent 1940 Academy Award Best Picture nominee series.
1: Our naughty children horror series had creepy adaptations like The Bad Seed, Village of the Damned, The Innocents, and Children of the Corn.
0: For our Hayao Miyazaki series, we talked about his take on Lupin III with The Castle of Cagliostro, plus his own The Wind Rises.
1: Some great listener choice picks, too. Viridiana and The Great Escape.
0: And for our David Mamet Wright series, The Verdict, The Untouchables, and Glengarry Glen Ross.
1: Plus, Kiss Kiss Bang Bang from our Shane Black series adapted from Brett Halliday's novel, Bodies Are Where You Find Them.
0: Dive into the sources for all of these at thenextreel.com slash originals.
1: Every book you buy helps support the show. Check out thenextreel.com slash originals today and find your next read. I'm Pete Wright.
0: And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to The Next Reel. When the movie ends
1: And you can become part of our Discord community, learn more about the show, and find out how you can become a supporting member at thenextreal.com.
0: So thank you, everybody, for downloading and listening to The Next Reel. We appreciate your time and attention, and we hope you enjoy the show. What do you have to say? What, do, what, what have you learned about Latin culture? Anything?
1: No. Nothing. <laughs> Not for Modern Family.
0: <laughs> you wish. <laughs> Do you have anything new to uh, report this week?
1: Um, I saw uh, Crimson Peak, and I Holy... saw Bridge of Spies.
0: Oh dear, son, you have been
1: busy. Yes, yes, it was one of those weeks. Oh my goodness! And report briefly. Um, I wasn't a huge fan of either <gasps> of them. Yeah, Crimson Peak, I was like, Neh. I hear Crimson it's Peak like, is just
0: not scary. I hear it's it it's a, well, it's a visual uh, treat, but it's not really a horror movie.
1: It's visually stunning, it is. But even in the sense of the horror movie, it's like, I feel like I've seen it before, and I feel like I've seen it done better, even by Guillermo del Toro. <laughs>
0: well, that's not great.
1: No, and, you know, it's just like, meh. You know, I, I, I don't know. I was really, really disappointed by that one. Um, as beautiful as it was to look. I just really just did not get into the movie itself. And Bridge of Spies was a good movie. It's a good story. It's an interesting story, but it's not one that really, you know, made me want to go see it again or anything like that. I'm like, okay, well, I'm glad to know that bit of history and I can check it off my list.
0: Wow. I don't even know what to make of this. I know, I know. You know Tom Hanks was in that
1: movie. Tom Hanks was in it. It's a Spielberg, Spielberg directed film. it. I blame it on the fact that John Williams didn't do the music.
0: <laughs> oh well, maybe because he almost died. I don't know. You- <laughs> a couple A-fi. weeks back, A-fi the A-fi, AFI reported him as almost dead and <laughs> winner of their award. No, it's not true.
1: You're a terrible person. Uh,
0: well, I am really sorry to hear that. Super sorry. Yeah,
1: I feel like I. I feel like um, you know we told the kids we're going to take him to Goosebumps and then for one re- reason or another we just didn't end up uh, finding the time to do it so you went I to feel see you, like... you went to see two movies instead of taking your children to goosebumps i see that now i get it exactly exactly but uh you know when you have parents night outs you have to take the <laughs> take the opportunity to go do something but um i feel like i would have enjoyed goosebumps more than either of those films
0: man i'm i'm sorry to hear that on all accounts
1: i'll get over it I'm a big boy. I hope so. It's going to be a long night. <laughs> yes, indeed.
0: I have seen nothing. Uh, it's been a solo dad week, and therefore I have nothing to say or to add to this conversation.
1: I guess the other thing we should report is uh, we both fought tooth and nail to get tickets to Star Wars. Oh, good.
2: <laughs>
0: God, man. That was bananas.
1: That was nuts. I guess um, you know it's going to be debuting on 390 IMAX screens across the country and or across north america and at one point in there it's actually going to be on every imax screen in the country for a short period of time <laughs> and it uh it made a whopping... and this is almost 2 full 60 months days before out from, the movie opens yeah it grossed 6.5 million million <laughs> when it opened on ticket its ticket sales um vastly beating the other three movies that were kind of had a three-way tie as far as advanced ticket sales, which were Dark Knight Rises, The Hunger Games and The Avengers. Each of those made around 1 million dollars from advanced IMAX sales. This one 6.5 million. <laughs> Shut down Fandango, movietickets.com, pretty much every movie. That was my problem. ticket I was, sales site. I was in the bouncing
0: da- back and forth between Fandango, Movie Tickets, Cinemark and Regal and they were all down. All server side yep. errors, all we cannot handle the Star Wars enthusiasm. All uh, we were not ready for this. Who would possibly be ready for this? This is insane. <laughs> that's what they just should have put on their 500 errors.
1: I think Alamo uh, is the only theater that I've heard that has actually come out to to verbally say, We're sorry, we just weren't ready.
0: Yeah. Wow. Yeah. On behalf no of the other chain has actually yeah, done that. But really thank you, question. Alamo. Thank we you. love you. Yes. For being. Honest, yes. Um, well, you got tickets, when, and you're going mm. Friday.
1: I'm going Thursday night, Ugh. and then I'm going to go. Uh, that's just me and my son because my daughter has dance recital, and then the whole family's going to go on Sunday.
0: You know, I couldn't get into our IMAX theater on Thursday night. It was so by the time the site came back up, it was sold out. Uh, and and so my challenge is just because the whole family wants to go, and they would not let me go by myself.
1: Uh, so I imagine I could have gotten in Friday,
0: but I'm, I'm we're actually seeing it Saturday morning. Uh, oh, and go. that stinks, because that means like not only do I have to stay relatively spoiler-free leading up to the release of the movie, then I have to just not speak to humans for two and a half days.
1: That's right. You know, I'll be texting you and we have a sending a show. you messages. Well, <laughs> we're, we're
0: not going to be able to do our show
1: now, is what you're saying.
0: Because we record on Thursday nights. Now you're going to do it from, what, the lobby?
1: That's Right. While I'm in line. All right. I'm done with
0: that. Shall we tell the people where we're from?
1: Where are we from?
0: This is The Next Reel on Rashpixel.fm, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hello, hello. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show... The 3rd in our horrible children Halloween spectacular series with Jack Clayton's 1961 film The Innocence. Before we get into that, you should learn more about us at thenextreel.com. Subscribe to the show on iTunes or follow us on Twitter and Facebook at thenextreel. And if you've ever seen that guy, you know, that one guy in the window laughing at you, really laughing at you you should definitely head over to the Instagram.com slash The Next Reel and play The Next Reel's Instagram hashtag PonyPrize hashtag Guess The Movie Challenge.
1: And with that, let's head on over to Scotland and check in with Stephen Smart, who's not entirely innocent.
0: Hey guys, this week's movie was The Age of Adeline with
1: Blake Lively
0: and Harrison Ford. This week's winner was at Enbergloff, who nailed it on Image 3 and is entered into the Pony Prize hat for a second time. As always, a new
1: challenge starts Friday. So thanks, guys, and see you later.
0: You know we have some follow up. Uh, yes, we have some follow up, and I'm, I am—I don't know, even know what to make of this follow up. I don't know if like I. So it's a plot spot. Ben Lot, dear friend of the show, wrote in with his coverage of Village of the Damned, and our ranks came out pretty close. I feel like he agrees with me. But I, I, I feel I, like
1: I, was, I feel like it was verbatim. From you. Oh. <laughs> Village of the Damned was half of a really intriguing movie. I liked the mystery of the sleeping town, but what really impressed me was the drama surrounding a town full of women with unexpected pregnancies. I think they could have done a lot with that, but instead they rushed through the pregnancies, and once the births happened, the movie got progressively less interesting. The story suddenly became a bad episode of The Twilight Zone. It was like the movie lost all emotional impact as soon as these emotionless kids arrived. I no longer had any investment in the film and just shook my head over the lousy kid actors and the silly brick wall plan. Your rank 145 out of 206, my rank 158 out of 206.
0: All right, you're right. It's pretty verbatim.
1: Yeah, I think we I mean, agreed. Yeah, I think that you guys pretty much agreed.
0: I feel like he was even maybe more enthusiastic about the beginning of the film than I was, but maybe we really, I think we really agreed. Yeah. You're right. Pretty eye to eye. All right.
1: You I know, think I of the 3 liked the film more. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh
0: you know we you know we we were talking about Star Wars and the bananas box office that this movie has 6 mu- or 2 months out from uh, right. launch. Uh what's going on in the box office Andy?
1: That, I don't know. It's things, crazy. Some
0: things are not doing well that really should.
1: Yeah, nobody. Nobody is going to see the walk.
0: And that uh, you've seen it.
1: I really enjoyed it. The I whole family enjoyed
0: too. it. I did yeah. too. It was it made good. It absolutely made good on its promise to be a family adventure. It was. I thought it was great. I told you what my daughter said. Did I tell you this on the show? Yeah, I think so. She, uh, th- there was not one minute that was bad in this movie. Not one minute. It was great, and nobody's seeing it.
1: It's only made nine and a half million since it opened. Which is piddly? It's a thirty-five million dollar production budget Ugh. for this thing, and uh, which is you know relatively cheap for a big Robert Zemeckis sort of movie, but uh, it's only made nine and a half million since it opened, and that's uh, nearly three weeks now.
0: That is such a shame, and it's yeah, it's worldwide, right? We're not waiting on any place else to launch.
1: Uh, no, worldwide, that's nine and a half million just domestic. Internationally, it's at 17.4. So, all told, right now, it's at just under 27 million. But okay. still, yeah. I mean, think of the marketing and everything else. I Terrible. Mean, it's going to be a, a box office flop. And, you know, Crimson Peak, I mentioned that, and Bridge of Spies, those both opened uh, this weekend, and neither did as well as people were expecting. I mean, neither of them uh, broke 20 million. I think Crimson Peak came in at 13 million, Bridge of Spies, about 15 million. Yeesh. I mean, it's just, uh, it was a kind of rough weekend. I think Goosebumps is the only one that actually really did well. So yeah, it's it's strange.
0: Is that, this was the uh, first, this was opening weekend for Goosebumps? Is that right? Yes. Yeah. So opening weekend at 121 million for the weekend. Right. Uh, That's, that's, that's not a bad open.
1: No. The Martian,
0: Martian's definitely holding in there.
1: Oh yeah, it's doing well. It's uh, been you know, what about two and a half weeks right now, yeah. and it's about one hundred and forty, one hundred forty-five this week. Million about? Yeah. No total.
0: Total, yeah. I don't. What do you think that is? You think people are really just waiting for uh, some of these movies for
1: VOD? You know, I don't know. I mean, it's it's one of those weird things. It's like they're they're good movies. They're worth seeing. I mean, The Walk. I mean, I can't imagine that many people saw the documentary. I mean, which is a brilliant documentary. I love the documentary. Uh, But just knowing the American public, I just don't think it's a huge documentary crowd. You know, I mean, I think people enjoy documentaries, but I think the vast majority of people prefer watching narrative films. Okay. And uh, so I can't blame it on the fact that, well, everybody saw the documentary already. You know, so then it's just like, well, were people just not interested in the story? I don't know. And then it, then it. This is the argument that always falls to Hollywood. Oh, nobody's going to see those movies. They want more Ant Man and Jurassic World and and Guardians of the Galaxy and you know these big blockbuster movies and, and the the big easy genre movies, uh, the fun ones. You know, not like, not the mm-hmm. Crimson Peaks, but you know, they they want those easy to please mass market genre movies. And then we get less of these other ones. I yeah. mean, this, Bridge of Spies had like four different big uh, studios at the front of it, as far as the companies that were behind it. Clearly, nobody wanted to pay for a little movie about, um, you know, spies in uh, World War II. Yeah. So.
0: yeah, That's too bad. Yeah. Um, I think we should probably uh, do trailers. <laughs> I, uh okay so I'm going to go first do it because I feel like I'm I'm doing one that is more of an honor to our series. Uh I think naughty, that's fair to say. naughty children. <laughs> uh coming to us from director William Brent Bell and writer Stacy Manier uh and uh, actress Lauren Cohen and Rupert Evans, Ben Robson. Lauren Cohen of course is one of my very favorites from The Walking Dead. The boy. Uh, Nanny is shocked that her new English family's boy is actually a life-sized doll. After violating a list of strict rules, disturbing events make her believe that the doll is really alive. Uh, it's a trope that we have seen. Uh, the, uh, it, it's, it harkens back to great films like Gremlins. Uh, where we have, uh, you know, the list of rules. Do not feed it after midnight. Do not get it wet. In this case, it's don't leave him alone. Don't forget to feed him. Don't cover his face. And she proceeds to do all of those things. And lo and behold, there she is, alone in the house with a creepy um, Pinocchio that is out to get her. It is really creepy. Uh, it looks like just the kind of thing I probably won't see in the theater, but I I bring this trailer up because it's a clever implementation. I like the laugh that she gets when she <laughs> first sees that after after the big buildup, when she first sees that the film is or that the the boy that she's been hired to nanny uh, is actually a, a marionette of of sorts. Um, and uh, so I that that made me happy. I will say that the director, William Brent Bell, um, is I don't know much of his work, but I will say I don't. I don't even remember why I did it. The very first movie I ever purchased on iTunes VOD when the store went open, one of the launch movies was Stay Alive from 2006, uh, which was the movie about uh, a group of teens that um, would uh, go to an, to an online video game and, and they would have to stay alive in this video game or they die in real life. And it's, it, was, it was really not a good movie.
1: So, Sounds like a winner.
0: Yeah, yeah, it was not good, but I was able to download it, and that felt magical, which which made the movie a little bit better. I've never watched it again,
1: but I own it. Anyway, what <laughs> love do you those think? Ones. I think it looks really creepy, and I just absolutely love it. I, I totally agree with you about uh, Cohen. I think she's great in in The Walking Dead. She's one of my favorites, and seeing her in this trailer um, just made me uh, thrilled and then watching the trailer was just it just i mean it it falls for all those those tropes you know breaking all the rules and everything but i mean what would you do you know you're in a situation where it's like oh don't ever forget to feed feed the boy but it's a doll it's you know it's so nonsensical so of course you're not going to follow the rules cuz it just seems absurd i just um i don't know it's right up my alley i really want to see this one
0: well you can andy January 22nd, 2016. You, you could take a friend or your son. He looks kind of like the boy if you make him sit real still. He's so cute. Which is impossible. And kind of shiny. Uh, So I think it's going to be great as a family film for you. That's it. There you go. What's yours?
1: Mine uh, is He Never Died, which is a, I don't know, kind of an awkward name. I'm not completely convinced that I like the title. But the trailer itself looks just like so much fun, and it it is a a Henry Rollins vehicle, which we just don't ever really see too much of. Um, Henry Rollins is a very interesting guy for people who are familiar with him. I mean, he certainly has been in uh, popping popping in and out of a lot of TV shows and stuff like that. And I mean, he is in stuff, but uh, this looks just great. I mean, he plays a, a a character who looks kind of—he uh, plays Jack. I mean, he's—he's he's this guy who seems like—is he a vampire? Is he you know just kind of a, an immortal? What is it about this guy? He's a, a social outcast. He's thrust out of his comfort zone when the outside world bangs on his door, and he can't contain his violent past. Um, As IMDB says, the banging on his door is the fact that he actually has a daughter, and he now has to deal with the fact that he's got this daughter that he just found out about. And then, of course, his daughter gets kidnapped and tortured, and he's got to go save her. But as it turns out, like he is, um, somebody asks him, how old are you? And he's like, I don't know, but uh, I'm in the Bible if that helps at all, (laughs) (laughs) which is great. It's just great. And so, you know, according to the Bible verse, it sounds like he's probably Cain. Also, according to the trailer, and I I get, you know, I don't know. Every time I watch that, I clearly miss that. No, I just must miss that every time I watch the trailer. (laughs) I don't know why, but anyway, yes, it looks crazy. It looks bloody. It looks like uh, he's having a very fun time as this guy who's just forced to keep living as much as he doesn't want to, and it just looks like a wild ride. The fact that Henry Rollins is in it um, just makes me happy, and it's kind of billed as a comedy drama horror. And uh, yeah, I don't know what to say. It's been playing at a lot of festivals, but it's going to open uh, December 18th. So it's it's up against the big dog come December. <laughs> Nobody's buying its tickets uh, two months in advance, <laughs> but it doesn't mean I don't want to see it.
0: Uh, I think you should uh, have also mentioned that it stars, uh, co-stars Boo Boo Stewart.
1: Oh, yes. Yes. Mm. I don't know who that is, but... Uh, <laughs> Well, but I love the name. <laughs> yeah, he, plays,
0: he played the coveted role of Seth Clearwater in Twilight Saga Eclipse. Ah, uh, of course. And Breaking Dawn 1 and 2. Old boo-boo. The thing I like about this trailer, and I, I, you know, we watch a lot of trailers. I love this trailer because it, it is a little bit of the mini-movie, right? I mean, it's not just... It, it's not like on the the Star Wars side of things where they give you they give you enough and you don't really you don't really know what the story is unless you're really digging into it and researching kind of the you know the news from the universe uh, it doesn't give you the movie, it gives you the visuals, it's exciting, and the music, it's in, it, emotional, and you're brought in. Versus, the, you know, the trailers that actually give you, they do give you the whole movie. Like, this one is nicely balanced right in between. I feel like it starts and we get the social outcast part, the little bit of the sociopath part. But then we actually get the, um, you know, we, we get the supernatural bit. And we get to see him get shot with a shotgun in this Red Band trailer. And we get to see him live through. We get to see him shot between the eyes, in the head. Uh, and he stands up and and you know obviously lives through it. It's I, I, that part for me, like being able to see the whole uh, the whole thing. I think it was a really well done trailer for this movie. It didn't give give away so much that it made me not want to see it. It gave away just enough for me to say I want to see a lot more of that. I am excited to see Henry Rollins in this film. It's like it was made for him. I
1: love it. Boo Boo Stewart has twelve projects that are either in, have been announced, are filming, or are in pre-production or post-production. He's a hunk. He is a hunk. A bona fide hunk. He is a busy, busy boy. He he was Warpath in in X-Men Days of Future Path. Yes. Yes, he was. And none of them,
0: none of the 12 things that he's doing are the Maze Runner. (laughs) He's like, he was like die cast for the Maze Runner. And he's not in the Maze Runner. I guess they had him in Twilight. That's know. right. Well, I thought, why not go out tonight and wander about in my bare feet? Which was a shocking thing to do, wasn't it?
2: There has never been a ghost story created especially for the adult moviegoer until the innocence. you do- 20th Century Fox, which presented Deborah Carr in Heaven Knows Mr. Allison, and such outstanding motion picture immortals as Snake Pit, Gentleman's Agreement, and Peyton Place, now gives you The Innocents, based on the Henry James Chiller of macabre evil. Brilliantly adapted for the screen by William Archibald and Truman Capote. Do they never return to possess the living? The Innocence, produced and directed by Jack Clayton, the man who directed Room at the Top, turned into fearful reality by the magnificent performance of Miss Deborah Carr, with Michael Redgrave as the uncle, co-starring Peter Wingard, Megs Jenkins, I saw him staring. Who, miss? The same man, the man on the tower. The tower? But now, just now, he was staring past me into the house as if he were hunting someone. Oh, what he like, miss? Oh, he had dark, curling hair and the hardest, the coldest eyes. You see, would you say he was very handsome? Oh, yes, yes, handsome, handsome and obscene.
0: <laughs> the Innocents, Andy. Mm.
2: 1961
0: British supernatural gothic horror film. Directed and produced by Jack Clayton. Stars
1: uh, Deborah Kerr, Car. <laughs> I feel like we're sleepless in Seattle. <laughs> is it Car or Kerr? <laughs> car Kerr, <laughs> See, or Kerr? According to you, but I yeah. hear she likes it when she when you say that.
0: Well, she does. I mean, she and I we were very close at yes. one time. <laughs> I haven't spoken to her for ages. Is it is it really Carr? Is it, it is car. car. Real? It is car. I don't it think really I've is. ever said it. I don't think I've ever actually said. It. I've read it. Never said it. Mm. All right, Michael Redgrove, <laughs> Mags Junkins. Is that are these not not what you expected? <laughs> oh dear! Oh dear! <laughs> you did it! You did it! It's on me. Uh-huh. this is based on "Turn of the Screw" by Henri James. <laughs> Uh, it, it's, uh, so it's the story of a governess who comes to the house and she finds out both of the children that she's watching are mannequins. Not true. (laughs) That's not a true part. Uh, I, I had never seen this film, uh, and you, uh, added it to the list. You said, we have to see this film. I had never seen it. And I, um, it is to date in our series of horrible children. It is my favorite.
1: Good. That makes me so happy.
0: Yes. I thought that it would make you happy. Yes, this I... is oh. this is
1: yeah, one of my favorites. This is probably a top 100 film for me. Um it just I just find it so unsettling and creepy and uh filmed so beautifully. It's just so visually interesting to always look at and the story is so um ambiguous. I I just love kind of the the weird you know, freakiness of the whole thing. It really just kind of a, uh, it just is is really frightful.
0: It It's, yes. What I love so much about, it, so the story is, uh, as we said, there's, there's this, the setup is a little bit boggling. Uh, the governess is being hired uh, by this wealthy industrialist in London. He says, you know, I've just inherited these two children, my, my niece and nephew. I want nothing to do with them. Nothing at all. I want you to go there at my country house, which is not really a house as much as it is a castle.
1: I want uh, a country house like that. Yes,
0: a country village. Uh, and, and I want you to go there. Go to the country house, and I want you to take responsibility of the children. I do not ever want to hear about the children or see the children. I don't have time for it. And at some point, he, he talks about how he, he, his life is, I guess, weirdly illicit. He's, there are things that he does that he can't say to children, uh, which I wanted to hear more about. Uh, they, never, they never really dive down that particular well. Um, and, and so off she goes. She's a first-time governess, and she gets in a carriage, and she goes to the country estate, and she takes over the children. And they, they start with this beautiful life uh, until she uh, she's with one child and it's fantastic and the child is perfect and cherubic and polite and the then she gets a a letter that says the other child's coming back from boarding school he we don't want him back at the boarding school so you can have him and uh, take him back we don't want him he's a danger to other children and and so now we have both of these children these perfect children and so begins the mystery are the children Really horrible, are the children somehow possessed, or is the governess seeing things? And it turns out uh, there's nothing going on at all. Right? Is she going mad? Is she going mad? Oh my goodness! It's was that, I. I. It was beautiful. well, and I think it,
1: I think of another very interesting element of the script that is worth mentioning is that she's a vicar's daughter, and uh, and kind of a. I, I mean. Deborah Carr is playing it, and she was nearly 40, so technically, she, uh, if it were in the Victorian era, it would be a little bit of an old maid, even though I think in the original story, she was supposed to be like 20 or something. But anyway, she's kind of a country vicar's daughter, so she's not really completely uh, at kind of tuned into the world or raising kids or anything. And so her interpretation of some of the things that are happening... Seen through the eyes of a vicar's daughter is like I've got to fix this, and I've got to you know use my tools to 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 smite the evil, and it uh, it becomes very interesting as you start looking at it and and figuring out is she really seeing these things, or is it all just in her head? And she's turning it into something because of that upbringing that she had.
0: I, I'm glad you brought that up. I I think the the way the film deals with um, you know, religion and uh, and sort of fetishizes symbols, religious symbols, uh, and and sort of bastardizes religious symbols in the film. I think is is fascinating. Um, the use of statuary as haunting figures, broken statues, um, you know, that are broken in kind of horrendous ways. Uh, I, I think is. It, really beautiful and it gives you that 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 to me really builds this sense of intensity of you know things are about to get freaky on well this around here
1: yeah it's so disturbing because there are so many shots where you see a figure standing in the back like in the backyard or whatever and it's like oh that's just one of those freaky statues that they have in the back yes. it's not really a ghost it's just this statue and those are so Terrifying in their own right. Yes,
0: yeah. Until it's not. Until it's a thing that's actually standing on a roof or appearing to you in the uh, reflection. It is uh, really haunting. Um, so, who do you? Wh- how would you like to to start talking about it? Uh, it, it? Pulling it apart. Where where do you? As the expert in the innocence.
1: I think that the the story and the script is a great place to start, and just kind of the nature of uh, of her character and what she is. Kind of what she's seeing. So, I mean, maybe we'll start with the the script and uh, Miss Giddens.
0: The script uh, was written by William Archibald and Truman Capote.
1: Capote, I hear. Capote. Is how he likes Capo- you to say it. Ca-capote. Oh, Capote. Yeah. Capote. No, you... And actually, uh, William Archibald wrote the play. This was actually mm-hmm. a play after after the uh, the uh, Henry James novel in uh, 1898. Then uh, um, William Archibald wrote the play 1950. And he did the first draft of the script, and it was um, not to Jack Clayton's liking very much. He felt that he didn't, uh, he, uh, Clayton felt that Archibald did not take it out of the staginess of it. It was really still just kind of trapped into the uh, interior location. And, and so- then it
0: would have been the bad seed.
1: And then it would have been the bad seed, right? And uh, But Mervyn Leroy would have loved the script. But uh, yeah, Clayton really wanted to break it out a little bit. He talked to some friends and ended up uh, with Capote, who he said, uh, Clayton said, uh, contributed 90% of what's in the script. And there's so much stuff going on in the script and a lot of just great, great bits. Like you've got that just fantastic line of dialogue when... Uh, Miss Giddens is talking to Flora about the fact that that Miles is going to be coming home from his boarding school. And Flora is kind of not paying attention. And she looks down. She's like, oh, look at the lovely spider. It caught a butterfly. And it's just like a great little moment for Flora. And it's also such interesting little subtext that's going on. And it's also really freaky because you're like this kid is off there's something just not quite right here
0: so not quite right because then she starts like tapping it
1: right tapping the butterfly like (laughs) you get it spider Because it is
0: it's in it's a butterfly it's like looks like it's struggling like they they (laughs) there's a great special effect there
1: yes absolutely
0: um i i think you're exactly right and and truman capote himself just not a well dude (laughs) this very is felt very much like he was channeling some of his own inner demons don't you think
1: and from what i understand he was actually working on this while he was dealing with the in cold blood story so that was in his head yeah while (laughs) while he was doing this
0: there you go. I this is um, this definitely feels like a Truman Capone um, th- therapy session. Uh,
1: the, interestingly, there's one bit that he apparently didn't like. He was very disappointed in himself. Um, the bit when uh, when Miss Giddens sees the ghost of Miss Jessel sitting in the classroom up at the desk, mm-hmm. crying, and then she goes up to it, and you know the cinema trick if she goes up there, and then all of a sudden she's not there anymore. But she looks down and she sees the teardrop on the little chalkboard and she wipes mm. the teardrop. He was very upset with himself that he put that teardrop in there because he felt it was too uh, much of a physical example saying the ghosts were real. And it didn't leave that ambiguity that they had been balancing so well through the rest of the script. So apparently he was very bothered that uh, that he wrote that in there and, oh. he, and he left it.
0: Okay, first time viewer comment. mm mm-hmm. uh, I didn't think that was the ghost. Oh. Like, I thought it was Mrs. Giddens. Like, I thought she woke up, she got up there and was like in such a place of terror that that, that she might have interpreted it as the ghost was real, but like the way I, and I probably um, went more down the road of interpreting this as a cerebral thriller and that so much of this was going on in Mrs. Giddens' head too, uh, that I felt like she was coming into touch with her own damage and that 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 tear was was more than likely hers.
1: Oh, I, I like that. I, I mean, I think that's a good way to look at that. And I think if Truman had had thought of that, then he would have been okay with it. <laughs> so I got Truman's back, <laughs> is what I'm saying. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs>
0: um, yeah. It, the uh, so I think the the pieces that felt particularly capote to me, the weird um, sexual undertones, right. Uh, the weird Freudian, Freud, Freud, Freudian, 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 Freudian uh, <laughs> undertones. <laughs> I want that ring. It's just a, it was very greedy. Uh, it, the the um, the relationship that uh, Miles has with Mrs. Miss Giddens, uh, particularly as captured in their goodnight kiss, which I think is that that apparently was not in the the book or play, and. Uh, it, it's a, a really erotic, much too erotic of a kiss, of a goodnight kiss, uh, as she is putting him to bed and he reaches up and grabs her head and kisses her on the lips and is there for a long time in a very yeah. adult kiss, um, which was one of the more intensely kind of horrifying moments of the film uh, just because of the duration, the length of time they focus on it, uh, the fact that you know how wildly inappropriate it is, the fact that she doesn't pull away quickly enough, um, the fact that he is so aggressive. And we should say, played by Martin Stevens, uh, we talked about him last week, uh, and you told me, you said, don't talk about him too much because we're going to talk about him next week. And man, did you nail it. Uh, <laughs> this this was the movie we should have watched, just to leave the other thing Village of the Damned. This is the movie to watch with him, and in he's incredible. He's great, yes. Uh, and and so this particular sequence really showcases, um, you know, what this young kid was able to channel in in creating a really inappropriately terrifying sequence.
1: Yeah, a sequence that also really pissed off the executives at 20th Century Fox, uh, because it wasn't, like you said, it wasn't in the script or anything, and and they were very unhappy that it was in there. But uh, I don't know how Clayton managed to keep it in there, but he did, and it adds so much to the intensity of this relationship between her and... This uh, child, mainly him, but also Flora, but it's it's there's this incredible intensity because she is feeling like it's this spirit of of the uh, the former landscaper who is possessing this child, who is making him do these things, and and we don't know is he really innocent? Is she really innocent? Who is really innocent here? And what's going on? And it it adds this psychological layer to the story uh, that really. Makes you uh, question what's going on here, and and uh, it's just it it really adds to this unsettling nature that this whole film carries through.
0: So, what is your sense of what Peter uh, Quint did to to Miles? Well, does that make does that make sense? Because the way I you know, there's a montage in it in in here where we have the. The dancing and the doves fly away, right. and it's and all then... over. And it, it felt very much to me like we're we're watching. Um, this is this is a visual metaphor of Miles losing his innocence at the hands of this man. That there right, is some sort see... of like like uh, inappropriate sexual content contact. Something that that we're supposed to get out of this that their relationship was untoward in some way, and that. Part of the haunting, and I'm using heavy air quotes there, is um, is Miles sort of internalizing and coming to more aggressive terms with what what has happened to him.
1: Well, and that's a very interesting uh, montage sequence to bring up. It's, a, it's fascinatingly um, assembled as far as the way that the editor built it using a Bunch of different images, layering them on top of each other. I think at some point there's even like four images, all kind of blending together. And you in know this what this reminded montage. me? of, Right. What's I that?
0: don't want to interrupt you, but I I think you know what it reminds me of. I um, don't. Well, the complexity of the edits of Under the Cherry Moon, which I think you were uh, <laughs> oh, you were oh, quite right. a fan of, right?
1: Absolutely. That's absolutely what I was going to talk about. You were the saying black, the black and white montage, yeah, of that film, hand. With it, the kiss yes, in the hand. over the kiss. Yes.
0: Does it make you wonder, why did they do the innocence in black and white? They did, We had to ask that <laughs> question before. Oh, you were oh saying.
1: yes, all these questions <laughs> that, that come up. But it, it's a very interesting montage because it does show these things that are happening. We see Flora dancing with Miss Jessel. We see uh uh Quint kind of walking off hand in hand with uh with miles uh, walking away from us and as i recall miles kind of looks back over his shoulder like he's kind of looking back to to you know to us yeah as as he is potentially going off to lose his innocence but then we also are looking at uh miss giddens as she's laying there and her eyes are open these are it's not really a dream it's not really visions my sense of it is it's her interpretation of or her imagining of what could have happened, and so i don't know if anything, and this is why I really love the way they play the with the ambiguity of the story you don't really know if what we 're seeing are images of what happened. did Quint really take uh, take miles back and do something to him to kind of corrupt his innocence? Or is this all really in Miss Giddens' head? And she's creating these scenarios of things that she thinks happened. And now that vicar's daughter in her is going to try to to get rid of that evil and help exercise that demon of Quint out of this young boy. And it's it really um, plays with your mind quite a bit.
0: Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I, that is an interpretation I hadn't. It, I was just going off of it as a, a metaphor, uh, but y- it totally fits with the way I look at Miss Giddens' character. That that she, you know, she is so troubled. She's troubled enough by the whole experience to leave the tear in the schoolroom. That it it really fits that this this is what builds to that level of intensity for her. Uh, that she she really is going mad as a result of of manufacturing the The story of these children and the story of the uh, their loss of innocence uh, at the hands of these people. Yeah, That's and I, I do
1: I do think it plays um, quite a key element. The fact that we see her during that with her eyes open. It's not just her with her eyes closed. It's it's like her eyes are open. It's like she's right. almost deliberately manufacturing these images to think about them. As you know, it's it. Uh, I find that a very interesting directorial choice and story choice.
0: Now that's a that's a really good catch. Her eyes are open. That's a that's a great catch. You're right. She's definitely processing something there. Right. Uh not just experiencing it. Fascinating.
1: And I think that, you know, it it goes this is another Capote element that I I think he integrated into the script so well. This level of decay that is kind of just all over the place. We see every time somebody bumps one of the roses that these white roses that seem to be everywhere, petals fall off they're just always like falling apart and we see um there's that really creepy moment when she's um in the in kind of that the rose garden looking for flora and she kind of pulls these uh these roses apart to see this little cupid statue there and there's this great this this is a little um clip of the script from capote A stone cupid, its head tilted back, its infantile toothless mouth widely smiling at her. In each of its outstretched hands, it clasps another hand, but these other hands are broken at the wrists. Like a small black tongue, a beetle appears. Just a great, yeah. a great visual of this this creepy little beetle crawling out. We see, you know, these dead this dead dove that, um, or this uh, pigeon or dove, I, I don't know what it is that uh, that Miles is keeping under his pillow. You know, they're dunking the turtle. he throws the turtle. You know, she's dunking it for a while, and then he throws the turtle through the you window. There's always this kind of decaying nature and this corruption of nature throughout the story that ties in so nicely with this decay of her mental state. Um, potential. Y- y- right, right. <laughs> it's either right. the decay of her mental state or the decay of the children's mental state by these spirits. Well, yeah,
0: and, and back to the, the statue, you know, that it was that statue that that caught my eye in particular, which, you know, of the the child holding the broken hands, uh, as if the hands are coming, you know, and they're upturned hands, as if the hands are coming to coddle the child, and the child has grabbed them and and torn them asunder you know and of course we we know that this was just part of a larger statue that is broken apart over age and decay but what it means in terms of the relationship particularly of miles to uh miss giddens is so much more uh, apparent uh you know on on that second viewing for me just man i get it um you know that here she was trying to be a caretaker and here he was um you know Uh, sort of exercising his own demons uh, at her expense.
1: Yeah. Uh, The fact that Deborah Carr, uh, I I mean, I haven't seen a ton of Deborah Carr films, but the ones I've seen, I always like her. I think that she's just such a great uh, screen presence. And I think it's very interesting that just a few years before this, she was another very famous governess in uh, The King and I. Yes, she was. (laughs) She's just a a fascinating actress, and I feel like she's one of those actresses that I really need to see more of her films. I need to see uh, like Black Narcissus. Um, I've seen um, uh, From Here to Eternity, which I think is just fantastic. But um, gosh, there's just so many out there. The Hucksters. The Hucksters. Haven't seen that one. I've seen Heaven Knows Mr. Allison.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. A little uh, John Huston.
0: Yeah, a little Robert Mitchum.
1: Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Car- and Clark Clark Gable. If, yep. Fair fair to remember. I've seen yeah. that one. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, you're doing so, all right. Yeah. But there's a lot. I mean, she's been in uh geez, fifty-three credits between T V and film. So she's uh, she was a very busy actress and uh one who I feel like I need to see more of her output.
0: Uh well she was she was terrific in this film and I think it's interesting when you look at we you know, when you the title of the film really we're talking about the the Initially, you think about the children, right? The innocence they, right. they are the physical manifestation of the innocence. But really, um, everything in here is about firsts, right? I mean, it's it's first sexual encounter, it's first um, you know experiences growing up as manifested through the children. It's her first time being a maternal figure, right? I mean, that they make right, a yeah. big deal about that, and this is this is very much her losing her innocence as a matron um you know as much as it is the the children growing up and uh, and i think that's a i think she plays that that level of kind of innocence uh, really well and you can tell she's the she's the nanny who's going to spoil the kids for a while um yeah i kept thinking to myself man she, i am never going to find going to allow her to babysit <laughs> when it's bedtime it is bedtime you go to bed you don't right, go not... play hide and seek in a haunted attic <laughs> ever
1: Oh uh, yes, that's another great scene when he starts like choking her.
0: Yes, that's crazy. Uh, the, let's talk a little bit about the visual identity of the film. It starts. Uh, the film starts on black. I thought. It, I thought it was broken. <laughs> you I, weren't the only person. I immediately Apparently... went to Amazon and wrote <laughs> a <laughs> <you> scathing put... <laughs> review. Uh, this oh, film did not star. turn on for forty-three seconds. And so I turned it off, and I did not watch the rest. <laughs>
1: uh, what's your sense of the open? I think it is perfect. It sets up the mood so well. The creepy, creepy song, Oh Willow Whaley, that's kind of sung by a child's voice, um, is haunting. It it creates this mood. It lets you know that, yes, this is a 20th Century Fox film, but it's not one that is going to be just overtly, hey, you're watching a movie here. Check out the 20th Century Fox logo. It really just kind of lets you settle into the mood before it even shows you the 20th Century Fox logo. Very smart filmmaking. And I, I don't know. I, this is just one of those things. It's like, why don't more filmmakers do this? Why? I mean, I know we have to have those logos at the front and everything, but why not... Give us a little bit of a moment right before that, that just kind of gives us a good sense of this, of of just kind of the the feel that we're going to have. It works really well here, and that song is so haunting, and I have been singing it ever since, or at least humming the tune. It's like, gosh, that is the most morbid thing to be kind of walking around humming.
0: It is, and it's uh, what what is the? It's the it's a story. Did you look at the
1: lyrics? I did. Yeah. Oh, Willow Whaley. Yeah. It's uh. I can't remember. We lay my love and I beneath the weeping willow, but now alone I lie and weep beside the tree, singing, O oh, willow, waley, by the tree that weeps with uh, uh, with me, singing, a oh, willow, waley, till my lover returns uh, to me. We lay my love and I beneath the weeping willow, but now alone I lie, A oh, willow, I die, A oh, willow, I die.
0: And all of this is sung by Flora, the young girl, Right, uh, and again, like talk about a great open, a great way to subversively introduce us to this girl losing her innocence. What is what possible business does she have singing this song, if it weren't for her experience with these adults doing illicit things?
1: And that's, I mean, going back to the spider, it's it. What business does she have? I mean, I know children are curious and stuff, but it, she has this gleeful interest in the morbid. And this song is a good example of that.
0: Anybody else in particular that stands out to you? Um,
1: I I mentioned the editing briefly with the montage and stuff. Jim Clark did a great job with the editing. I really enjoy what he did both with the editing, like the montage and the dissolves. There are so many dissolves. Like every time we're going from from, uh, sequence to sequence, there's always a dissolve. And they're really slow dissolves, like almost creating ghostly images as you go super slow from one to the next which I think lends to that atmospheric ghost story feel all the way through.
0: Can you, I mean, think back, will you? I mean, when was the last time you edited film? Uh, college. <laughs> I was there. That's uh, right. It's, it, it, it's an enormous pain. It's a it pain is. in the rear to edit film. It really is. I That is what I was thinking of the entire time I was watching this film, because you're right, it is every sequence there is it 's not just a slow dissolve it 's a wildly complex dissolve that tells its own narrative in th- four to five seconds. There is a narrative in like every dissolve because it 's not just uh, one sequence of frames over another sequence of frames very very slowly there are layers of images upon images i couldn 't i can 't imagine um, the the level of of just introspection that he has to bring to every one of these sequence transitions, I thought it was great.
1: Yeah, it's it's beautiful. I mean, it really is. I mean, taken out of context of the actual kind of scary ghost story, it's very beautiful the way that these edits move. The one that really sticks in my mind right now is the one that goes into that rose garden where you dissolve out from, I think they were in the room, and then you dissolve to this this close-up of this white rose. It's just this beautiful white rose, and then it's immediately dissolving already out of that to kind of the, the wall of roses as we then see uh, Miss Giddens in there.
0: Yeah, I you know, I couldn't tell on some of these, just having not watched it enough times yet, but I sort of feel like there are some that he teases you with, like he starts to dissolve and then pulls it back and then introduces a new image and then eventually you get there. But uh, it, it just feels like such a kind of a, a dance with, with us, um, yeah. you know, kind of drawing you into the next sequence. I just thought that that part in particular, Jim Clark's work, was uh, really, really great.
1: And speaking to what you were talking about last week with the sound, I think Jim Clark did a really really um, mesmerizing job with the sound effects here. I mean, he admits that he feels like in retrospect he was a little heavy with the the reverb on some of it, but there's something about the way that the sound effects play through the 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 bird calls or the kind of the the um the flutter of wings um, and just the kind of the creepy sounds in the house, just the way things, the echo and, and reverb and kind of, she doesn't know where things are coming from. and She doesn't know if things are really there. The sound works so well here. And all I could think about as I was hearing all the really unique sound effects here that really lent to that um, haunted atmosphere. All I could think about was Village of the Damned and your comments about that, about how they could have done a lot with the sound effects in that film.
0: I. There you go. I feel like I feel like I just should get a medal
1: <laughs>
2: Winner. You know,
0: i i so I think you're right. I love the sound. I also love the light mm. and and you know so much of so much of the whole sort of the oeuvre, right the whole mood of of these films in particular is built on how well they handle light and shadow, and this film I thought was was done exceptionally well. There are some sequences with some enormously complex lighting setups um where you know, if you it, like, I I found myself pausing it and and staring at these c- single frames of her, Deborah Carr uh, on uh, on a stairway holding the candelabra, looking back over her shoulder, and there is light coming in from the moonlight at the top of the stair, and it's cascading down over the arm rail of the stair. You know logically that there would be light, on the wall behind her, but the wall has been taken to black, um, and that i would put just sort of a radial mask in there or a, a gradient mask in, the, in there and i would do it in post and it would be fine uh but that is not that is not what it looks like they have really strategically um lit each of these sequences in this fantastically gorgeous set that i thought was um really well atmosphered um <laughs> don't you think i mean
1: Yeah, no, Freddie Francis, the cinematographer, um, did just a stunning, stunning job with this. I mean, to the point where in the exteriors, he would paint some trees to make them have more light or less light. I mean, he was that specific with some of this. For the candle sequences when she 's walking around the house, he wanted to light those with candle as much as he could, and he actually had them make these candles with four wicks, so he would have these huge flames and they still would have um, some some uh, people with lights on the sides of the frame who would on dimmer switches, so as she'd walk by, the light would come up and then down to kind yes. of help illuminate her and he and um and uh, Jack Clayton really um Were initially fighting to shoot this. Uh, They wanted it because they wanted to keep that atmospheric um, sense tight. They wanted to shoot this the regular at the time, kind of the British uh, standard aspect ratio, which was like one point six six to one. And uh, and Twentieth Century Fox had just kind of come out with the Cinemascope. They'd patented it and everything, and so everything that they made had to be Cinemascope. And they told them, "You have to do the Cinemascope or else." And they finally relented. And one of the things that uh, Francis came up with to kind of help with that is he would create these tunnels of light. So when the scenes were really dark in the house, he would put these filters on the lenses that he had painted the edges. And so they would kind of drop off to black. And so as you as you see these scenes, you can see when the vignetting is happening because it just looks so much darker on the edges of frame. And they would create what he would call like kind of tunnels of light Especially when it's really dark at night, you can tell that it's really almost like a 1.66 aspect ratio shot. There's just so much that gets dropped off to black. And it created such a really interesting look all the way through um, with the way that he was playing with the light. I thought it was just absolutely fascinating. This was at a time, because these lenses were brand new, where it was a very bulky thing. And so I think that was another thing that they were kind of hesitant to shoot with CinemaScope, even though they had to. The CinemaScope lenses at the time, my understanding is that they actually had two focal um, places, two focal points on the actual lens that, they, that the camera team had to operate in order to keep things in focus. And it just sounds like you had to focus them separately, which sounds just horribly
2: horrible. difficult. Uh, yeah.
1: horrible. Yeah. It's like, gosh, how did they do that? And the interesting thing with these lenses is that um, when things were really close to them, and especially toward the edges of the frame, they would actually bloat a little bit more. And so some interesting shots when you would have one like uh, like the um, the wonderful, wonderful um, maid, Mrs. Gross, played by Megs Jenkins, when she would be like all the way up on the the front left side of frame and Miss Giddens all the way in the back right or something like that. Um, Mrs. Gross's face would be a little more bloated because she was that much closer to the lens. So it did have some of that distortion in there but um you know i still think that they just they worked it um brilliantly throughout to create great framing shots of somebody really close and somebody really far or the vignetting or just the way that they constantly were working it it's just just brilliant
0: and to your point man they use that deep focus all over the place
1: oh yes Uh, It's everywhere.
0: It is everywhere. And it was great. And it's amazing just how well that particular technique uh, lends itself to making children scarier. (laughs) Right?
1: Yes. Um, Absolutely.
0: uh, One more thing on the candles, because obviously they're using real candles. Were you not... I mean, was that not a particularly horrifying thing to watch as people would get scared and run with a candelabra in and out of these rooms and up and down stairs. Like, that That whole experience to me was really difficult just to
1: watch. They are going to set themselves they on fire. They are going to set themselves on fire. <laughs> Something
0: is going to light on fire. Nothing ever did, but it should have by all rights.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, those are huge flames. I mean, like four-inch high yeah. flames coming off of those things.
0: It was not good. No. Pretty scary. Um. All right.
1: Random tidbit of information. Megs Jenkins, um, who I said did play um, Mrs. Gross, also played Mrs. Gross again in 1974 in the Turn of the Screw TV movie. <laughs> well, How interesting is that? There you go. <laughs> um,
0: uh, did, we already talked about a little bit about the sound. Mm-hmm. Do you want to say anything else about uh, more about the music? George um, Oric
1: I... I thought it was very interesting, very moody music uh, George Auric, uh put together. Um, it, it's very haunting. It lends itself to the film quite well, I think. Um, I just can't get past the song, though. I mean, I think the music is great. I think it works really effectively in this film. But it's that song, The, will, uh, the Willow Whaley, that burns into my brain.
0: Uh, we have talked about him before. Um, he did the... Uh... Lavender Hill mob. Oh, well there you go. There you go. Which was very different in tone. Yes it was. Yes, it was very different uh, in tone. But I I found it uh I, I found it really a terrific um uh, score. I really enjoyed it even above and beyond the song. Uh I thought it was a, uh, I thought it was as you said it was wonderfully moody and and really helped to draw me into the experience the haunting experience of this and i did not even watch it in the dark as you instructed me
1: to <laughs> you should have
0: i know i should have i failed
1: oh man
0: anybody else on your list
1: um i i just think that uh jack clayton is a very interesting uh director here he apparently never knew who his father was it was kind of a mystery uh for him growing up so there was a little more of an attachment to any story that involved uh, kind of kids or fatherless kids and stuff like that. So I think he really kind of connected with this story and um, I, you know, I think he does a great job with it here. Um, I haven't seen much of his, in fact, I don't know. I know room at the top was his first, uh, first big film. I never saw that. uh, And I never fully watched his, the version of the great Gatsby with, uh, with Robert Redford although like i said i'm doing the robert redford series so i'll be seeing that at some point um i guess something wicked this way comes is probably the only other thing i of his that i've seen i mean he doesn't have a lot of director credits but uh
0: he doesn't but apparently did you catch this on wikipedia apparently he turned down alien interesting i would not I have i would not have expected that <laughs>
1: Well, he is an interesting uh, uh, a guy who's been in the world of film, and I think he's just one of those guys who didn't really start as a director. I think he kind of came up um, actually working, I believe, doing some stuff with uh, John Huston and um, with cinematographer Jack uh, Cardiff, who we've talked about mm-hmm. before. Mm-hmm. And uh, so um, he mm-hmm. then moved into uh, working as a director and did some films, so...
0: Something Wicked This Way Comes. That, Let's see. When did that come out? That was 1986, like I think. 83. Oh, wow. Well, April ninth, 1983. That was the scariest thing I had ever seen at the time. I was it... terrified by that.
1: I didn't see it at the time it came out, but I do remember being pretty creeped out by it when I finally did see it. And then I watched it again recently, and I was pretty disappointed.
0: <laughs> I, I'm glad I haven't. I'm yes. glad I have not seen it because I would be disappointed. But wow, yeah, I it's, was scared at that thing.
1: Yeah, it's a creepy, creepy film. All right, that's one that may be worth a remake.
0: Yeah, probably. You know that and crawl.
1: Yeah, there you go.
0: <laughs> uh, let's see. Anything else we want to talk about before we do the uh, numbers?
1: Um, I, uh, just wanted to say that, uh, I, I really enjoy Michael Redgrave in his brief bit as the, uh, as the uncle. Yeah. Very brief. Um, but he works really well because he's very memorable in the role. There's something about the way that he performs it and his face and everything that you remember him. Like he's stuck in your head for the film, I think.
0: Yes. And I, I agree with you. I think this is, this is, that scene would be the only scene that I have a problem with in, in the script. Mm-hmm. not a fault of his. Uh, but I find, and, and again, this may be just a sign that it's dated. This is the part of the story that's dated to me, which is his adamance that he is not involved in the lives of these children. <laughs> and it's not even so much that he is abdicating his role as their uncle, right? He's he's their blood uncle, but not familial uncle. It's just the, the way he says it, the you know the the number of times he repeats it, the the way he burns it into her head. I do not want you ever to talk to me about these children. Those that that kind of language and the delivery I found was so over the top. Like that was that was the piece that I just was like. I hope it gets better from here. <laughs>
1: um, and luckily, it does. It gets a lot better from there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I I agree with you. I, that is kind of a weaker part of the film. It, but you know, it still is something that I, I can I can kind of buy into, especially because it's just such a short beginning. The interesting thing that is uh, why I brought him up though is that um, Jack Clayton initially offered the part to Cary Grant of all people, and uh, which would have been very strange to see Cary Grant in the film. And yes. Cary Grant uh, expressed a little interest, but he said only if the uncle gets to come back in the end and and have a little bit more uh, kind of of a, a last scene in there, uh, kind of showing his his resolution to help the children at the end or something like that, which sounded absurd. And, and of course, Jack Clayton was smart enough to go, yeah, it's probably not going to actually work out if we do that. So he said at the time, which was the early 60s, which was really a big peak of, of Cary Grant's um, he said he was probably the only person out there who actually actively turned uh, carried down or carried down for one of the roles in a film.
0: I, uh, you know, I think this is an interesting film. I ca- I came across this passage um, from Lawrence Raw writing about uh, Hollywoodizing Henry James. Do you come across this particular? No, I didn't see that bit one, huh? Of writing on Jack Clayton's *The Innocents*, and I just want to read this bit because I think this is interesting. It comes at a point where I think we were witnessing a transformation in Hollywood. He says, um, "I do not think uh, I do not think that su- sufficient critical attention has been paid to the socio-historical context in which the film was created. I suggest that *The innocence should be approached." as an example of the process of vertical disintegration at work, with a major Hollywood studio being responsible for the distribution and financing of a film undertaken by an independent company. While this apparently gave producers and directors more freedom to develop their own projects, in reality, the new system offered the studios a chance to cut production costs, which were now borne by the independents while retaining overall control over financing, casting, and distribution. Jack Clayton was only offered the chance to direct and produce The Innocents. Isn't that—I mean, that sort of gets to what we were talking about. We've been talking about this transition out of the Hollywood—the um, studio model, right? Right, the studio system. Right, the studio system. And this film is, you know, appears to be a bit of a milestone in this vertical disintegration where we we now have an independent studio that produces bears the brunt of the production and then 20th century fox comes in buys the rights to it and distributes it
1: that's very interesting don't you think yeah it is really is i and i I,
0: I wonder it makes me you know i wish i had read this before i watched the film it makes me want to watch it again uh with that in mind uh, particularly when you look at at costs i'm looking forward to Hearing what you uncovered around the money
1: this film uh it had a hard time it it was critically received really well um when it opened in nineteen sixty one but it didn't uh it didn't completely click with an audience um it cost about one point two million to make u s dollars um at the time which adjusted is about uh nine point four million dollars and in the end it ended up making about um about 1.2 million dollars um and adjusted which is adjusted about 9.3 it it made just slightly less and it's funny because the the profit per finished minute ended up being it lost about 48 dollars per finished minute um and then (laughs) adjusted adjusted that's about 375 dollars per finished minute so it uh now, of course, this doesn't include any uh, prints and advertising, anything like that. And uh, I'm sure there's other figures that might figure into this. But still, it just goes to show that it found enough of an audience for of people to watch it, but not quite to actually be a success. And it wasn't until like the last 10 years when this film really all of a sudden had a kind of a resurgence and people started um, actively seeking it out. I mean, Criterion just released a beautiful, beautiful Blu-ray of it. Um, Just in the last couple months, it's just it's really just uh, changes the way you you see so many of the wonderful images throughout the film. Um, And it's just uh, it's just gorgeous. And uh, but up until the last 10 years or so, it was just kind of uh, largely forgotten. And so it's great that people are finding this again, because it certainly deserves to not be in the negative column on our adjusted profit per finished minute.
0: That's really unfortunate. Yeah. Well, I think we should probably rank it. Let's do it. All right. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel, everybody. And you should set up an account and then log into that account and friend us, the next reel. Uh, and then we're, you're going to start ranking movies. And uh, you're going to rank all the movies that we have ranked and see how your stack rankings match up with our stack rankings. And let's hope this one breaks that top 100.
1: I sure hope so. You know, I love it. So The Innocence or Kind Hearts and Coronets. The Innocents absolutely the innocents are sleepless in seattle Mm.
0: i would say the innocents on this one which means if it doesn't go any higher than this it's
1: on you it's on me oh my i'm gonna say the innocents
0: i just got the chills
1: (laughs) it's like you saw the ghost of quint outside your window the innocents are fight club pete You know, I can't do it. (laughs) I can't can't either. I can't either. Uh, So Fight Club wins that one. The Innocence or The Descent? Huh. I'm going to say The Innocence. Yeah, I think I will too. The mood really is just creepy, creepy, creepy. The Innocence or Misery? We're getting some good little... uh, Yeah, these are good matchups. Yeah.
0: I'm going to say The Innocence against Misery for sure.
1: I... uh, I'm a little torn, but I am gonna say the innocence. The innocence or sweet smell of success. I'm saying the innocence. Yeah, the
0: innocence. Yeah.
1: The innocence or ace in the hole. I love me some ace in the hole.
0: Yeah. Hmm. Boy, I'm really torn. Are you is that you picking ace in the hole?
1: No, I'm a little torn myself.
0: I feel like I'm I've, I have haven't seen it enough times to maybe judge this one. I think innocence. Ugh. I think the innocence. That's what I'm going to say, the innocence. You're That's saying it. the innocence. I'm saying it.
1: I feel like I'm going to say ace in the hole. But I'm I'm flip-flopping a little bit. So if you're the innocence, I'll go with the innocence. I'm the innocence, you. yeah. All right, I'll I'll flip back over to the innocence. The innocence, Kramer versus Kramer. The innocence awfully good stuff going on in Kramer versus Kramer the innocence <laughs> okay <laughs> all right the innocence number 27
0: with a bullet
1: 27 out of 207 yes it, uh, it was only stopped by fight club as it should be <laughs> It's an excellent, excellent film. I am so thrilled to uh, have put it on our list of films that we've talked about. Um, I just absolutely love it. It's always a great one to watch around uh, Halloween. So hopefully, our uh, our listeners enjoy it too.
0: I hope so too. I think that this this film so beautifully articulates that sense. I think you said it right. That sense of this just terrible horror that is present but not. Obvious, and I think that, uh, and the ambiguity of uh, you know of the the manifestation of that horror is really terrific. Uh, we didn't talk about the end, the death of Miles, which you know is I, I think a, a seminal point in the film. That the the way he dies with the uh, you know he just sort of drops dead in the middle of the of the garden, um, uh, and in her arms. I thought that was just a a really beautiful way to wrap up the film and who knows what happens to her as a result of it. I just feel like it was, it was really hauntingly articulated. So I, I, this was a great pick, Andy. I am so glad you put it on the list and I'm really glad it's in my collection.
1: I am so glad that you enjoyed it because I get so nervous (laughs) when it's something I really like (laughs) that I show you and you're like, Oh, I hated it. (laughs) No, you were right on, on this one. Well, good, yes. Uh, if if lots the worst of fun thing
0: I can say about it is that it's no Fight Club, that's a win.
1: <laughs> right, right, exactly. Yeah. Um, what's your uh, What's your letterboxd rating for uh, this one?
0: Uh, gosh, are you a five-star on this one?
1: You know, I give it four and a half, and I think it's because there's some elements right at the beginning that uh, that stumble a little bit for yeah, me. That was it.
0: I was going to give it a four, because that's kind of where I am on the whole introduction to the con- conceit.
1: Yeah, right.
0: Uh, so... Okay, well I think that's fair.
1: Did you know there was a a prequel made in 1971?
0: I did not know that.
1: Yeah, with Marlon Brando. Oh. Called the night the nightcomers.
0: I I don't know of this one. Now it's
1: it's technically a prequel to the novel. So I don't know I, I don't know if it ties into I mean it's, it's essentially the same story, but um I kind of uh curious to see it now. Um well, yeah. Marlon Brando plays Peter Quint.
0: Well, that's what I was going to ask. Is it the story of Peter Quint and the boy?
1: And Miss Jessel. Recently orphaned, Flora and Miles are abandoned by their new guardian and entrusted to the care of housekeeper Mrs. Gross. Governess Miss Jessel and Peter Quint, the former valet and now gardener. With only these three adults for company, the children live an isolated life in the sprawling country manor estate. The children are particularly fascinated by Peter Quint due to his eclectic knowledge and engaging stories and willingness to entertain them. With this captive audience, Quint doses out his strange philosophies on love and death. Oh, I the feel Governess like we should see Miss that. Jessel. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um,. I am uh, going to have to add this to my list of things to watch. wonder if it's any good. Where are we going next week? Uh, this, we're going to wrap up our yes. big
0: uh, children, uh, uh, horror, horrible children extravaganza.
1: That's right. We're, we're wrapping up the Naughty Children series with Stephen King's Children of the Corn, the 1984 version.
0: I'm glad you specified.
1: Yes, because there was that remake that was a couple years ago, and I didn't hear anything good about that one. No. So.
0: I didn't either, uh, but I didn't know. I thought maybe if it was great, this would be one that Andy would recommend. Trying to be an outlier.
1: Yeah, I'll be I'll be curious to watch Kill, Children of the Corn again. It's one I'd only seen uh, recently, so I'm kind of curious to revisit it. See what I, I think. of it this I time. have
0: not seen it in years and years. Yeah. So I, I am I have very precious little memory of it. The only thing I really remember is the hand
1: in the blender. Hmm. I don't, that was in that movie, that. Right? I don't know. I don't know. I don't even remember, and I just watched it like a few, like a year or so ago.
0: <laughs> I hope it was in
1: that movie. I really do. <laughs> I hope so too. I want to see a hand in the blender. Jeez. I know there was one in Goonies. <laughs> Close no, that was oh.
0: it. No, this was a thing. Okay, well, maybe I only saw the remake. We shall see next week.
1: I gotta go to bed. All right, I'm gonna go up to my roof and stroke my pigeons.
0: I, you know, Andy, I'm going to read a, a part of one, <laughs> but, it, but I'm reading it because the punchline comes in one of the responses. Over Excellent. Amazon. This is a one stale. One stale? It's a one <laughs> star. And the comment is not worth watching. This movie just does not deliver. The story makes no sense and the ending is awful. The children don't act like any children would act under similar circumstances. <laughs> what? The adults don't either. When given reasonable courses of action, the character played by Miss Carr rejects them in favor of outlandish actions. As the person with some rationality and theory and control, Miss Carr's character acts very irrational and as someone without control. My wife believes the main adult character played by Miss Carr is nuts to start with, and that may explain the rest of the film because the entire story is told from her point of view. But that isn't made clear at any point. And if she was irrational to start with, it isn't brought out. If she becomes irrational during the movie, it isn't clear what might have brought on in this break what might have brought on this breakdown. I do not recommend this film. It is not worth watching. <laughs> the first comment <laughs> Bless you, Judy Fryer, is this film was supposed to be written for adults. Perhaps you should stick to movies for children. <laughs>
1: love it Uh, that's what
0: I got what's yours
1: well Brian Cabana gave it one star and said holy crap (laughs) (laughs) I'm watching this film now it's on TCM what a badly acted and by the way there's commas all through this like there's no (laughs) periods (laughs) it's just commas I'm watching this film now. It's on TCM. What a badly acted, I suppose badly written, hence the bad acting. The children especially. Lousy actors. The girls scream, cry, scream, cry, scream, cry on and on for what seemed like 20 minutes. Miss Carr, eyes wide open, jaws askew, like she's going to throw up. Is good acting by some standards. If the music is supposed to be scary, it's not. With that incessant piano tinkling and drum beats and the alien movie music, it's about as scary as Casper the Friendly Ghost.
2: (laughs) What?
1: Yes, Brian Cabana apparently just spewed whatever came into his wow, head as he, as like he watched the film.
0: He did not like yes. that film. Do you know, some nights I think, gosh, you know, what are we doing? And then some nights, Amazon, you deliver. <laughs> I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022...